0: Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which
1: valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development into products and
0: services that will benefit society.
1: From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments... We bring you conversations with the
0: leaders in technology transfer, who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host,
1: Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Champ Gumpton, Manager of Technology Commercialization in the University of North Carolina Office of Technology Commercialization, also known as the OTC a position he has held since May of 2016. Prior to joining the OTC, Champ worked as a technology licensing manager at Ohio State University from 2012 to 2016, where he managed intellectual property matters in medicine, pharmacy, veterinary medicine, chemistry, as well as biochemical engineering. Prior to Ohio State, Champ worked as a postdoctoral fellow at Baylor Scott and White Health Cancer Research Institution, where he specialized in pharmaceutical CGMP manufacturing, process development and scale-up, as well as quality control. Champ began his IP licensing career as a technology licensing assistant at the University of Texas Austin Office of Technology Commercialization back in 2010. Champ is a member of the Association of University Technology Managers, as well as the Licensing Executive Society. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Champ.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks again for taking part in the podcast. Let's go ahead and kick things off at the beginning. Why don't you give folks a feel for your background and ultimately what led you to tech transfer?
0: Thank you, Lisa. So what led me to tech transfer? So just to begin my background, I have a PhD in cell and molecular biology from the University of Texas at Austin. And prior to that, I have an undergraduate degree in biology and minors in chemistry. Uh, so, following graduate school, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I considered multiple careers outside of tech transfer and actually academic bench science. So, I began to uh, explore those during graduate school and my academic advisor, I was actually considering going to the, to the Navy and he uh, recommended that I take out tech transfer. So, I did an internship at the office at OTC at UT Austin and it stuck and I just really enjoyed it.
1: Wow, that's a big... Uh jump from the possibility of going to the Navy to tech transfer.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And how did you end up here in beautiful North Carolina?
0: So, as you mentioned earlier, I spent some time doing process development shortly after my time at uh, OTC at UT Austin, uh, about a year and a half there. I then took a job at Ohio State for four years managing a broad array of technologies uh, matters. And so it was time to Get out of the cold and come to a place with a little bit more warmer weather and just nicer. Yeah. And this was an area that I was targeting after graduate school to live because it's, it's the RTP, of course. And so when opportunity was available, actually, I saw on the Autumn website, uh, I applied, interviewed and actually got the position. It's been great.
1: Yeah, it really is a beautiful area. And if you're into life sciences and startups, it's it's really a great place to be. Now, turning to your office, the OTC, it's part of the Office of Innovation, Entrepreneurship, and Economic Development, known as IEED. And I know it's also branded by the university as Innovate Carolina. And my understanding is they take a holistic, integrated approach to working with faculty, staff, student entrepreneurs, to help them hone their Ideas and translate them into innovations and take them into society and then ultimately the commercial marketplace. And it's really impressive uh, based on the research I did. The IED has a number of startups that have been affiliated with it over the time. And looking at the numbers that go back to about 2008, I see there's been about 454 active startups that were responsible for almost 9,000 jobs in North Carolina. And in that same year, these companies actually generated annual revenues of about 11 billion dollars for the state and that that's quite a bit of money
0: very impressive absolutely
1: yeah and and some of the interesting startups that I read about one in particular I really found quite interesting was Sandbar Oyster Company that is working to restore oyster populations for the envi- environment and the very important coastal economy here in North Carolina and that was very interesting startup. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: My colleague uh, manages that one. It's out of our Department of Marine Sciences here. So, a very interesting startup opportunity there.
1: Yeah. You don't really hear of too many startups out of the marine department, marine biology. So, and then you have your traditional pharmaceutical related ones like Falcon Therapeutics, which has developed personalized stem cell therapies to treat cancer. Uh, then you have Impulsonic, which Developed immersive audio games for virtual reality, which is a, an interesting one as well. That's really cool. G1 Therapeutics, which is helping patients um, that suffer the toxic effects of cancer treatment. So very important startup there. And then a really another really interesting one that I came across was Bamboo Therapeutics, which is involved with rewiring genes to help patients suffering from devastating diseases. So... Really impressive startups. And that's just a small sampling. a small sampling. Assembly.
0: And actually, what's interesting about that list that you provide is that those last two are some of our biggest successes, too. Yeah. G1 really? and Bamboo. Actually. Really? Yes. Yes.
1: So now that we've kind of touched the background a little bit, your history and some of the university activities here, let's get a little bit more granular and talk about your office, the OTC in particular. Can you tell us a little bit how you guys are structuring in terms of licensing, IP, business analysts and startups?
0: Absolutely. So thank you. So as you mentioned earlier, we are a part of IEED. And so, with that, you know the the entire holistic approach. There again, it's more the Innovate Carolina team is is a we're a two part team. We have dual functions. We're trying to increase entrepreneurship ecosystem here at UNC, of course. But our Innovate Carolina team, they're focused more on on bringing bigger opportunities for students to maker spaces, opportunities to just have them involved in the and create the entrepreneurial spirit on campus here, of course. Um, and so also we, as far as the licensing team, the OTC team, the core technology transfer team, we are structured very, very unique. And we have a licensing team that consists of five commercialization managers. Uh, we also have a support team, which is led by our, our directors that, for our back office where they take care of all of our administration, our analysts, our interns, our marketing. We're all together and our contracts team together finance, all of that is important, but we work together seamlessly, and that's one of, the, one of the most impressive things about this office, how we are functioning. We also have opportunities where we are built into, we have Kickstart opportunities, so our business analyst team that helps us work alongside with our faculty members to help them um, Spend companies out and educate a large portion of our job in tech transfer. As We all know this education and helping our faculty understand right. what it means, teaching them how to pitch, how to go out here and apply for grants and, and get that funding and utilizing our networks to bring in angel investors, venture capital. So that's a part of another team we have. We also have another interesting part of our team that's more of our patent and market landscape analysis. This kind of operates also with our Innovate Carolina but we utilize a lot of those same functions within our team to get our jobs done.
1: How big is your team? I mean, it sounds impressive, you know, just hearing all these different people and having different roles within the department.
0: So I think recently our office has expanded. Uh, I know historically the office was only maybe like five to seven people. I think now we're a total team of Innovate Carolina of about 30. Oh, that's a big group. And, we have a, and Carolina, Innovate Carolina has at least 10 or 12 interns that, they, that function just for the student side of the family. Like a lot of stuff. we have a several, in terms of we're training, so that way we can build a pipeline for new licensing fellows and licensing analysts as they go up and, and learn more experience in tech transfer.
1: Wow, really interesting. It's always fascinating to hear how different tech transfer offices are structured. It's, you know, no two are identical, and that's what's, I think, so interesting about it. Yes. Let's talk a little bit now about the bayh Act, especially with the 40th anniversary approaching. Can you reflect, Champ, a little bit on the impact the act has had on innovation in the U.S. and in particular on innovation in U.S. universities?
0: Yes. I mean, I feel that the Bidol Act has definitely provided a lot of opportunities for university faculty members and the universities to uh, see a huge uh, jump in just research expenditures. It's it's provided opportunities for faculty members to work more with uh, industry partners. And with that, that spurred a lot of of development for technology, specifically in the U.S. We've seen a lot more patent filings, a lot more commercialization opportunities, startup companies, and it's made a huge jump just overall for economic development for our cities and states.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I was recently in South Korea in the fall, and and South Korean government is now making a concerted effort to try and get research out of universities there in South Korea. And it's hard to do. They're finding it very challenging. And I think... That's something that Bidol has done really well here. Do you have any issues with the Act or anything you'd like to see changed or updated?
0: No, I think everything, from my particular opinion, is working fine. Awesome.
1: Let's talk about numbers. In particular, let's start off talking about inventions and patents. On average, what do your numbers look like in terms of number of disclosures you receive every year, number of patent filings you make, number of patents issued, things like that?
0: Okay, thank you. So, on average, UNC has about 100 to 175 uh, disclosures or per year, and we file on about 50% of those, which sort of gives us an average around 89 to 90 patents, new patents filings every year. And yearly, on average, we see about 56 to 60 new issued patents. And licensing-wise, we see about 67 to 75 li- new licenses per year. And on our our startup side, because you and see we're very and most people know that we are the founders of the Carolina Express. So we yep. do about eight to ten licenses that our startup-focused that are out of the university. So about ten startups per year, and our average uh, annual uh, licensing revenue is around five five point three million a year. Wow, that's an impressive number. Mm-hmm.
1: Let's talk a little bit about patents and litigation. We touched on the number of filings you make every year and what you file on. But let's start with the AIA in 2012. Did that change at all the approach the office here took with respect to patent filings or not really? Was it business
0: as usual? So I can't speak for my time here. I wasn't at UNC in 2012 when AIA passed, but I was at Ohio State. And so at that time, we definitely saw a huge change in how we were filing new patents at that time. We filed more patterns aggressively than we did before because we were just so worried about the whole first to file. Um, it changed everything. So we saw in Ohio State, we had an average of about 380 disclosures per year. So we were filing a lot more than we would normally would do.
1: Wow, that's a lot of disclosures.
0: Yeah, so I would imagine that UNC, most universities would probably begin to file more than the, that was just kind of what I saw from talking to other colleagues at other universities to see more filings. Wow.
1: Did that you know, you weren't here at UNC at the time, but maybe you can speak when you were at Ohio State. That that changed the way you drafted your applications? Did you draft more robust patent applications? Did you just continue doing maybe cover sheet provisionals?
0: How did that work? Definitely began to file a lot more robust, fully drafted provisionals. Uh, we felt because of the how the AI was structured that what, if you didn't file a, uh, more than a coverage provisional, you would lose to the rights sometimes to file in Europe or other different territories. So we began to just take an approach where we would spend the money, file a really strong provisional up front, and see what happens after that.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the really difficult aspects of AIA for universities is that you really need that robust provisional, but you can't file on everything. And so in some instances, you don't have time to file on everything. So you need to do a cover sheet and you're caught between an essentially a rock and a hard place. And dealing with that is can be challenging at times.
0: Especially in the life science space too as well, where you're trying to figure out if this even has any legs yet. And and on the therapeutic side, and specifically the diagnostic side, because at the AI at the same time, diagnostics were changing, too. So that really was a huge uh, blow yeah. for us all.
1: The one-on-one issue has been real problematic for universities. I mean, diagnostic companies have the issues, and, and they're, I think, dealing with them in other ways. But I think for universities, really challenging. And then trying to, you know, get a startup out there when you're dealing with a, a diagnostic invention is, is challenging, or even now medical devices, wearables, everything has a computer component uh-huh. to it. It seems like that that's a real challenge. Absolutely. What about the PTAB? That was established as part of the AIA, and it was thought that it would really benefit the high-tech industry. You deal with a lot of life science, life science patents. Have you seen any issues with any of your university patents being brought before the PTAB in terms of an IPR or PGR, or have you guys been pretty lucky and avoided that?
0: We have been lucky. Ohio State, as well as UNC, we've been pretty lucky that we have, I have not personally seen much things brought forth for for the PTAB.
1: Yeah, it's going to be interesting now. I think we're going to start to see more of the PGRs maybe pop up at, you know, the the post-grant reviews, kind of like the oppositions in Europe. I think the IPRs have been a couple of universities that have had to struggle through that process. But it's going to be interesting to see once the PGRs get rolling, what that's going to do to universities and how they practice. What about your office's approach to litigation? Have you had any here when you were at Ohio State or, you know, maybe University of Texas when you were there? Have you had to go through that lovely
0: experience? So I have been involved kind of in my early in my career, University of Texas at Austin, where I was working with the licensing specialist there. And we had one case in particular where, Litigation was beginning to start, and so, of course, finding an external counsel that, that can litigate for us was something that was I got to learn a part of that. I haven't experienced that much at Ohio State or here at UNC. Uh, I have spoken to some colleagues at Ohio State; they are going through some. They're aggressively going after these things now. Uh, UNC will go after you know uh, infringement. Uh, we just haven't had anybody that's infringed. Most of our companies have been faculty startup companies, so we're. Less likely to have licensees that are going to infringe, or we hope that our licensees will partner with us to attack the infringers.
1: Yeah, the last podcast episode I did was Dean Stell from Wake Forest, and and he had uh, the pleasure—I'll say and I'll put "pleasure" in quotes—of <laughs> going through some litigation, and uh, he talked about the eye-opening experience of document retention and going through documents and emails mm-hmm. and just the whole discovery process, and it's a, a challenge. And when you're, you know, in a university, there's a whole different level of complexity to it. So it's it's pretty
0: interesting. I can imagine.
1: Yeah. It wasn't one of his most favorite experiences. It's no one's favorite experience. Let me Absolutely. Tell you. <laughs> how about vetting disclosures? How, how do you handle that? I mean, that's such a complex process. You know, we alluded to it a little bit before about you might get something sent to you the day before or a few days before a public disclosure versus something that maybe comes in very, very early and it's not ripe yet for patenting. How do you guys deal with that?
0: You know, I think like every tech transfer office, of course, we are gonna do our best to, to find as much diligence as we can for whether it's patent literature, whether it's publications, we're gonna to talk to our faculty inventors the most because they are the subject matter experts. And so we rely extremely heavily on them to help us understand who are their competitors, who are their research competitors that are operating in this space because that is largely the word we're going to find the competition, uh, we feel that we will ad- be able to identify. So we use different, we use patch Snap. Uh, we use Google Patents, of course, to do our, our preliminary research. We here at UNC have the ability to kind of tap into our university library resources to use things such as some of our market research reports that are available to us here. So we tip. I use those quite, quite often to help me understand not only the market opportunity, but also the patent landscape. Those are extremely valuable to me because I can now go to my faculty inventor and speak to him or her and say, hey, this is what I've identified. If I find something within an hour or so of my searching that I feel is pretty damaging to our particular intellectual property position, that's something that I really try to alert my faculty members one-on-one that, so we can have a discussion about how to put together our appropriate patent strategy.
1: Yeah. How about literature searching? Are you do you primarily just rely on your faculty for that?
0: No, I don't. Uh because I, I it's been my experience that all faculty members say the same thing. Well, mine is novel. And I'm like, well, of course, if I dig into your own your own research paper that you've published, I'm gonna find art that you're gonna build off of. And so and that's the art that we're having to educate our faculty members that, that the examiner is gonna utilize to say this is known. So we spend quite a bit of time. Educating so a large portion of we all know in tech transfer is educating our faculty members on patentability, on marketing, on novelty, on you know all those things and uh, licensing and pitching. All these things we, we we work on every single day. This is something that that is one thing that is the hardest for our faculty members to understand that um, it may be a novel discovery, but it isn't a novel invention, and it's extremely difficult to explain that.
1: Yeah, I've had that. I've been in that position, obviously, as outside counsel, having to explain that, and and sometimes you can get them to understand the novelty part, but when you move to obviousness or inventive stuff, uh-huh. that's where it gets difficult because they have a hard time grasping, and it is a difficult concept to grasp, and it doesn't make a lot of sense, I think, to them because to them it's a wonderful, unexpected, surprising discovery, but it's technically not. Non-obvious or it is obvious. So it's a it's a tough, tough road to really explain.
0: Yes. Or or better yet, it's not even an invention. It's a discovery that's something you didn't create. Exactly. You have to be able to re-engineer this and make something. This is naturally occurring. So what have you done to improve upon it? And that's something that is extremely difficult for. Yeah, how is it
1: markedly different than something that already exists in every, yeah. And, and, you know, we talked about diagnostics, but then you get into some of the food scientists and, you know, plants and other things, and that's extremely, extremely difficult to get them to understand because, you know, this plant variety may have new traits. And uh, is it really markedly different than what exists out there? It's a tough one. How about um, foreign filing and PCT? Do you guys do a lot of foreign filing?
0: We don't in my time here unless we have a licensee. So that is something that we are, UNC take, adopts a really strong position on that. We don't have the budget to be able to support a large international patent portfolio without the assistance of a licensee. Uh, now, I Texas at Ohio State, based on how our, our market diligence told us, we would definitely pursue International patents based on the size of the market opportunity there. So, we just different approach.
1: Yeah, yeah, very different. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about corporate partners and the role they play in university tech transfer, particularly here at uh, UNC. Do you have many corporate partners? Are they a big part of the tech transfer process here or not really?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, one of the functions in our group that I didn't speak about earlier is that we have a, a director of strategic partners. His role is primarily to Help us identify those large corporate partners who are interested in wanting to come in and just whether it's funding research, basic science research that they're interested in that could result into IP downstream. So we have partners like that. Uh, you may be aware of our recent um, sign up with Pinnacle Hill, which is yes. out of Deerfield. So that is one of our largest, most recent um, corporate partners that we're working on. And So we are very excited about this opportunity, spurring uh, early stage research. Uh, and if there are opportunities that go into Pinnacle Hill, that's pl- possible chances to spin companies out and more license opportunities, but it allows us to push the, push the needle down a little bit more to do more proof of concept development.
1: So I can't. I don't know if you can talk about this, but are those types of deals structured a little bit differently than some of your other licensing deals, or how does that work? If yeah. you can talk about, yeah, that a I little can bit. talk
0: about it at a high level, but yes, they're definitely structured differently. So the the licensing deals I feel are very very comparable. They're partnering. They're mutual. Right. So we're excited about what's available to us uh, in terms of partnering with a partner like this to come in and fund the research and. Being able to also spin that out if they find this something commercially viable and valuable. One of the things that we are excited about Pinnacle Hill is the fact that they have a team on the Deerfield side that uh, and it's a joint team, you have UNC and half Deerfield individuals at the Pinnacle Hill on under Pinnacle Hill, but their experience is largely pharma and their venture capital. So they bring that strong market. Market feedback
1: experience, absolutely, yeah. and
0: along with our our team here at U N C. So we're bringing the research side along with the funding, and these guys know this is gonna this is gonna hit where patients are gonna where we need this to be market wise, and they can see this is an opportunity, and they help us spin that company out, put together the management team. Those are things that we're pretty excited about.
1: So the idea there is you'll be able to spin them out faster and and get them in target areas where there's really a need and more likely
0: their startups are more likely to be successful. Absolutely. Definitely spinning out stronger, more quality teams and quality startup companies as well.
1: That's awesome. How about philanthropic organizations? Like, do you have anything like the Gates organization involved here, Walton Family, Parker Institute?
0: I know we have a number of faculty members that have definitely received Gates Foundation and, and Parker Institute funding from um, from these institutions as well. So we're very excited about those opportunities. And so we're working through them. And so we've had, I believe, one or two that have spun out into a university startup company also that, that was the result of that early stage funding.
1: That's great. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of your past licensing tra- transactions and partnership. Hindsight's always a great thing, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking. Knowing what you know now, can you talk about things you might have done differently uh, looking back at, at some of your your deals and things that you've worked on?
0: Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I would definitely do differently on, on quite a few deals, and I'm taking this approach more now, is that when I have specifically university startup companies uh, and their faculty founded, I really am promoting them to take an option first. And so, of course, you know, small option fee Maybe they're they're covering some of their option fee, of course, is going north toward their past patent costs to help reduce some of those things early on and also give them more time to flesh out their business plan. My experience has been many of our faculty members come in thinking that they're going to go out and they're going to raise $50 million in three months. Well, they recognize very, very soon in that period that they can't raise that money. And also now, but now you have patent costs, licensing fees, all these things that are coming up that are due and they don't have the money to pay it. Right. So, I would rather have an option and that it can expire once they have done some diligence on their own, so I definitely believe i'm a, I'm a fan of that because it can expire versus it just being a termination right and the company doesn't go under
1: and in my experience too, I think sometimes they think that it's going to be easier to juggle their day job with their startup and everything else, and it gets to be overwhelming so i I think the recommendation of an option is a really good one. Because if you can't find a management team or somebody to come in and help you, or, or sometimes uh, a professor wants to do it his or herself, and in those instances, I think that your recommendation to take an option is, is definitely a good one. Thank you. Why don't we talk now a little bit about some of your office's biggest success stories, or maybe some of your own success stories?
0: Okay, great. Thank you. So, um I will say recently our offices had some big successes in terms of bamboo therapeutics, as I mentioned earlier. Right. Uh, that was one of our things out of I think the Department of Pharmacology as well as the School of Pharmacy, and I think it was across the School of Medicine. So it was a largely uh, collaborative, university-wide type of opportunity that was recently an acquisition that was made. Now, of course, this was a deal that was done prior to my time here at UNC, but it occurred when I joined the team here. So I've learned quite a bit about that. Also, G1 Therapeutics, as we are all aware, has gone public. That was a UNC spin-out many years ago. So we have some small opportunities there that have been successful for, and we credit that as a huge success for our office because that it started here. Of course, personally, one of the largest deals that I have done myself was it, it was a patent that was over, oh, sorry, a license that included over. A, 100 patents. So a relatively large patent portfolio when I was at Ohio State.
1: I would say that's huge. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it had the potential to be anywhere from 80 to 100 million dollars. I'm not sure where where it stays at this point in time, but it was definitely a large and it was an extremely difficult, complex license to negotiate.
1: I would think with that many patents and, (laughs) and probably given the technology, it must have been quite the minefield to navigate. Yeah,
0: it, it was, and so, and again, of course, it was. A, it was such a, such a large uh, patent portfolio, and, that, and it was a huge amount of money for the university because Ohio State had invested so much into this particular patent portfolio, going back to the international patent filings. We had invested a lot of resources for this one portfolio. I can only
1: imagine what your patent expenses were <laughs> for that
0: portfolio.
1: It must have been huge. It was. Wow, that's quite quite a success story. I should, I would say. How about um, talking about some of your office's biggest challenges? What what would you say? Things like funding, hiring. What what would you say? Some of the challenges are you guys are facing? I
0: mean, I think one of the things that I think I've learned, even moving to North Carolina, RTP Triangle, I was coming here thinking this was going to be just just thriving, huge, booming ecosystem, and it is for life sciences and for technology. But I was, I think, I was a little disappointed with the size of the venture capital that's here. Uh, and I think it's even though, you know, we're on the West, because we're, we're not California, we're not New York, we're not Boston, you know, so that we're not getting those same investors or the same quality investors. So funding is a big issue there. Uh, but in terms of overall innovation, this area is un I think it's unmatched, in my opinion.
1: It's amazing. I spend a lot of time down here and I am re- was really surprised like you about the lack of VC funding. Do you have any idea why that might be or why there hasn't been the attraction like there has been in Boston? I mean, California, I think, is a totally different animal. But any thoughts why, you know, the VCs haven't found it very attractive down here?
0: I think it largely just comes down to the number of high net worth individuals who are willing to invest in novel technologies and see that, see that it takes a long launch path for these returning life for life sciences, for life for sciences sure, yeah. specifically, you know, this area is still growing in terms of the engineering. I mean, cause as you, as we are aware, UNC does not have engineering here. Right. And so versus our colleagues at Duke or NC state have engineering programs. So we're, you can see a huge difference in their uptick and their licensing revenue because of engineers can be spun out faster and are quicker to market. Versus life sciences, we're looking at a 10 to 15 year launch pad before we see revenue. So venture capital tends to be a little bit more shy about that. And I understand Definitely. that, you know, they're looking for a return on investment in a way to easy exit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it's hard in the pharma space. It really is. Medical devices, I think, is a little bit easier uh, depending on the medical device. But but pharma is really tough one. Absolutely. Anything else you would say besides, you know, the funding issues that you would say is a particular challenge for your office. I
0: mean, I, you know, I, I guess again, I will step into maybe possibly retention. I think we've done a great job in terms of hiring really great talent here. As, as I said earlier, we our team has expanded from what it was years ago. I think our vice chancellor has she's sat down and she's figured out how to bring individuals from industry, from academic tech transfer, from legal background, MBAs, engineering, all together under a nice, strong team. So I, but retaining that talent is always difficult when you have a team as large as ours. How do you keep these people together, keep them all happy? Because you have to have a team and your tech transfer office has to function seamlessly. And so that's always a challenge. So, But I think we have been, the, this office has been the best staffed now than it ever has been, which is why we're seeing such a huge uptick, even in our licensing numbers.
1: right. That makes sense. It's, it, and that's something I hear in a lot of university tech transfer offices. Retention is, is difficult. People do jump around quite regularly. It, it's a hard thing to kind of keep people, I think, uh, groups together, unfortunately. It's a, it's, it's a challenge for every office. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about women inventors and entrepreneurs. Does the university here have any programs for women entrepreneurs or women inventors that they support or advocate
0: so, unfortunately, we don't have a dedicated program for um, women inventors or innovators here. We do have a number of extra, extremely successful women entrepreneurs and faculty members. So, I can think of at least three startup companies that are are developed by our women faculty members that are here. And so, uh, successful ones that are doing great. Um But I feel like we do a great job supporting every single one of them as far as from helping them, uh, whether they're strong, high-tech engineering platforms, life sciences, even some of these uh, lifestyle plays. We We do a great job of supporting those opportunities when we have dedicated innovators in that space.
1: That's great. What about organizations like Autumn, NACUAS, LES, things like that? What's your view on those? Do you think they're helpful for tech transfer offices? Uh, do you find other organizations helpful? What What's your view on those?
0: So as you mentioned earlier, I'm a member of Autumn and LES, and I'm a huge supporter of both. I have learned so much from Autumn and LES meetings. And actually, I I use both meetings for different things. I mean, both, of course, are great professional development experiences, but Autumn gives you a lot of educational content that you you don't get at LES, I feel. I use LES for more of the industry networking experience because you're going to see more industry professionals there, in my opinion, than at Autumn. And so uh, I get to hear more of the actual types of deals that industry is looking for at LES versus Autumn. So it's both, but I think um, both have different experiences.
1: Yeah. And it's been amazing to me to watch how much Autumn's grown when I first started um, way back in the early nineties, it was amazing. Autumn was just a couple hundred people would go to the national meeting. And now it's amazing how much it's grown. And there's thousands that attend autumn national. It's it's really incredible how much the organization has grown and the international presence. Yeah. I was looking at the autumn national list. Um that'll be in about two weeks here and People from Europe and Australia and Thailand, people coming from all around the world. It's, it's amazing the reach that Autumn has at this point.
0: Absolutely. And I will add one more thing about Autumn that I actually am really excited about. I'm very uh, happy they have, they have done here in the last few years is to have the Autumn Animal Health Partnering. Yes. That is a huge opportunity that many tech transfer offices completely overlook. So I, I know when you're at LES, of course, you may run into one or two animal health partners that are there. But. Having a dedicated event for animal health is very, very valuable, specifically for our early stage human health technologies. So I'm a huge fan of autumn animal health partnering.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. That's I think I've heard a few other people who have said that's been invaluable as well. So something may not be suitable for use in humans, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have an application in the vet space. So what about credentialing. Do you think that makes a difference in, in your mind? Do you think that's important for people who work in tech transfer to have or not really? I'd be interested to know your thoughts.
0: Thank you. So I think this actually goes back to the retention question, in my opinion. I'm a huge advocate for any professional to always seek to improve on their skill sets. So after you've gotten so far educational-wise, whether it's a PhD, MBA, or whatever, you, you still need additional experiences beyond just doing the job every day. And so having these credentials says that you are a valued person to this profession. You are now extremely experienced and, you, and it's, it's important. So whether you take it in the university side or even on the industry side, I think both have their place. And so you know, I am a fan of both the LES CLP certification as well as the, uh, the RTTP designation out of autumn.
1: Do you think it makes a difference when you're negotiating with a pharma company or somebody, uh, a licensee on the other side? Do you think they take you a little bit more seriously?
0: I think coming out of university, they absolutely do. Uh, When you have a CLP or an RTTP designation, because they now, I've had times where industry professionals have said, well, you you guys at university don't understand how things work here in industry. And like, well, actually, I do. You have the same designation that I have. So, yeah, I believe so.
1: I hear that a lot from industry. Mm -hmm. They they frequently say that universities don't understand how
0: industry works. We don't know how to price things. Like, uh, well, again, give me a... Me a Favorable term sheet and we'll we'll figure it out in the middle.
1: Yeah, and that's something I think Autumn helps tech transfer offices out with a lot with pricing information mm-hmm. and royalties and things like that. Now let's talk about if if you could have a genie in a bottle or a Santa Claus or have a you know three wishes. What would your wish three wishes be for UNC if you could have wishes
0: granted? Okay, three wishes. Let's see. Funding. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, <laughs> that's, everybody,
1: that's everybody's
0: wish. So I'm going to say funding one, funding, funding again, two. two. Okay. And, you know, and I think also just really in more education for our faculty, um, more education in terms of how to partner. Uh, I think that's something that is invaluable. We can teach them as much as we possibly can. But until they begin to interact more with, with industry partners, it's difficult for faculty you know, to understand that industry operates at a different pace. They have different expectations. They want different deliverables. So those are things that I would definitely would want to help us increase more of our corporate partnerships and have more faculty engage outside of the academic space.
1: How would you accomplish that education for faculty? Do you think it's just getting experience working with industry partners, or do you think there's some way industry could come in and Explain the process to faculty. What, what's the best way of, of dealing with that type of situation?
0: It's a number of both. So I propose quite a few things here at UNC. I've proposed where we have a counselor such as yourself come in and give lunch and learns about patentability. So that, that's one thing, because I think a lot of our faculty members need to understand that component. What makes a strong patent application? How do we file? Also, we have to invite more partners and to present at our, we have a monthly seminar series here at UNC and we, where we network it's, you know, there's, uh, there's hors d'oeuvres and later, but it's really great to have entry partners that participate there. So faculty can hear firsthand that it's not just the tech transfer office saying, this is what we want and this is how we're going to fund this. So hearing it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, helps our faculty understand that it's not, we're not the ones stopping up technology
1: that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's a challenging one, you know, it, and it takes a long time to educate faculty on that point. Absolutely. So, well, good luck with the education. Keep plugging away at it, Champ.
0: Thank you. We will.
1: Well, Champ, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions or discuss any of the points you made today, where can they reach you?
0: Sure. They can reach me at my email address at champ.gupton.com. At unc.edu. Again, that's champ.gupton, G U P T O N, at unc.edu.
1: Great. Thanks so much again, champ. It's really been great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com.
0: New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.